and you know the thing is the typical kid they might hit some social snags and they do something that was they step into it if you know what I mean mm-hmm. and they realize oh shoot I shouldn't have done that they learn and then they know next time they're not going to do that. They're going to do something else. So, for example, if they're like a girl and they approach a girl and they say something and the girl says, blah, 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 mm-hmm. they say, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to try something different. Well, someone with FESD might approach a girl and get a negative thing, but they don't know how to correct it. Mm-hmm. So where should be there to how would you talk to a girl? What would you say? What's appropriate? What's not? Hello and welcome to our podcast, Pop Fast Talk Ed, a series that features conversations with those in the field who share important information that pertain to supporting students with FASD in the school setting. Today we are fortunate to sit down with Dr. Esmail and learn about important considerations when teaching sexual health to students with complex needs. Dr. Esmail delivered a fascinating presentation at our district partner meeting that brought out many important ideas and strategies that educators can take away and use in their classrooms. Thank you, Dr. Esmail, for joining us on this podcast. Would you mind starting it off with a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I'm Shadif Esmail. I'm a professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy, and I am an occupational therapist. I'm also the associate chair. And in terms of sexual health, um, I teach the sexuality courses at the University of Alberta. I teach the occupational therapy students, physical therapy, etc. Um, I also teach a general sexuality course. Um, I also developed the first graduate certificate in sexual health um, that's being offered by the University of Alberta. So that's kind of my baby. And yeah, my research is all around sexuality and disability. I initially started in the area of uh, disabilities impact on couple sexual relations, but I've been focusing more of my energy on uh, sex education guidelines for children with disabilities. So that's what I do. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so today you were able to come and present at our district partner meeting and having a, a, an afternoon kind of focus on teaching, uh, supporting teachers and, and supporting students around that sexual health piece. Uh, a couple of key things that, that, uh, that, that really kind of stood out to myself during that presentation was around teaching uh, to the individual's chronological age and then around around um, their sexual expression around teaching to their functional age. Could you elaborate and kind of explain why you're pulling that out? Okay. Basically, the thought is um, you need to make sure that individuals understand sexuality basically based on their chronological age because when it comes to hormonal drives and sex drive and expression or behaviors they tend to be driven biologically and uh, you need to make sure that they understand things at that level so if it's an 18 year old you have to teach them sex education at the level they can understand but it has to be something where um, you're teaching what should a typical 18 year old know about sex you know, safe sex, uh, permission, boundary setting, and all those kinds of things. However, sexual expression should be based on um, their functional or apparent age. So if a person's functioning, let's imagine that they're 18 years old, but their uh, social development is at a eight-year-old or 10-year-old, then sexual expression should be based on that. And so um, should an eight-year-old be, or eight, a 10-year-old be having intercourse? Probably not. So you probably wanna uh, talk about expression from 
you know, making friends, holding hands, maybe kissing, hugging. But when it comes to any sort of intercourse or any sort of oral genital activity, that's probably not something you want to um, allow for expression. However, things happen and therefore you need to teach chronolo- based on chronological age so they understand safe sex and all of that so if biology takes over from the thought process they're actually going to be uh, hopefully doing it safely mm-hmm. something else that really stood out during your presentation was about context mm-hmm. and when you are teaching especially on that functional piece around sexual expression about um using kind of like specific examples yep. that they are familiar with you want to exactly what you want to make sure is it's meaningful to the individual because of the thought process may be impaired slightly or there may misunderstand abstract concepts what you want to do if you just show them a picture of a boy and a girl they're not going to take it in but you sh- put them in the context of you know what is it like to talk to a girl and maybe have them actually talk to a girl or put themselves into the story so you're talking to Sarah and maybe Sarah is a person in their class that they're interested in how would you talk in that kind of thing so it's real to them so that when it actually and if it actually happens they know exactly how to deal with it because if you're just teaching from an abstract concept there's a boy named Joe and a girl named Sally and they meet and blah 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 it, it a lot of times it's not meaningful and they can't relate to it so they're not going to internalize it mm-hmm. so if we were to kind of have a scenario here uh, thinking about maybe uh, an educator that's listening to this podcast they have a student in their classroom uh, who's maybe exhibiting some uh, sexual behaviors that they um, are maybe not comfortable dealing with might not have that the tools what are some recommendations of kind of those steps to go through um, with supporting that student well, I, I it's think, very broad and big. There. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is if something's happening in the classroom that's deemed as inappropriate or something that shouldn't be happening in the classroom, how do they deal with it? Mm-hmm. So I, I think the best thing is not to make a big deal out of it. You just you know try to normalize it, look at it from the person's perspective. But you say, okay, that's probably not the best thing to happen in, in a classroom. And it would cause them to be stigmatized by the other students and it can cause embarrassment for themselves other students and a lot of discomfort so you know you basically redirect but at the same time you don't forget about it you deal deal with it so you might you know depending on the person's and you know if the, the child's understanding is at a level where you can talk to them and talk you know about what's appropriate what's not you know privacy public etc then talk about that must feel really good however you probably don't want to do it in class that's something that's more private and then talk about where are private places then you might look at within the school system is there a room or a bathroom or something they can go to if they're doing something like self-stimulating or something like that if it's uh, something where they are maybe trying to touch other students or doing something from that perspective then you talk about respecting you know inappropriate touching getting permission and being very direct about it would you like it if someone came and touched you a lot of individuals with FESD tend to be tactile defensive. They don't like being touched, but they might like being uh, touching others, right? So how would you like that? Should you give permission in the same way? You need to get permission. But at the same time, you have to talk about contextually. It's not just appropriate to go up to a stranger or somebody and just touch them. There's usually 
socially appropriate sanctioned places to touch. So you talk about, you know, you shake a hand or you say hi and you might tap them on the shoulder, but you don't just go up to a person and touch them. And they also talk about body parts. What parts of the body are okay to touch? We have permission to touch what are inappropriate and private places. So Mm -hmm. So a lot of education around appropriate. Yeah. And And again, uh, very contextual skills. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure you probably get this a lot because I think we even asked you, Mm -hmm. uh, are there any resources that you've come across for for teachers (laughs) to help uh, to support them in this area? You know, there's lots of resources out there. And as I said during the session today, is most of the resources, if you just use them the way they're given, probably are not going to be effective. Okay, so what you, uh, I suggest is for the uh, teacher to actually say is, okay, I have, this is the issue I need to deal with. And I talked about common sense, but that reasoned common sense, you know, what would be the most appropriate in that situation? Is it something where you just deal with it, talking to the student and, you know, giving strategies that make sense within your context? Because a lot of times when you bring in resources and programs, it's always whatever. But in terms of literature, I mean, there's lots of, you know, small little research projects and lots of descriptive papers that talk about what do you do in certain situations. And they have some really good, valuable information. But all of that should be taken with an understanding that you're going to take that information and make it very specific to what you're doing, what you're dealing with. And remember, each kid, you could line up 100 kids with uh, FASD and not one of them is going to be the same. So there's no recipes. You just got to Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I said common reasoned sense. Yeah. You know, just using deal with it live. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's a theme that I pulled out uh, from your presentation was understanding the indiv- individual and their needs and what is their motivation for the behaviors that are being presented. Exactly. And that all revolves around that relationship piece. And mm-hmm. like you said, there you can line up a hundred and they're all going to be different. If you don't have a relationship and, and, and um, do your best to understand why that's kind of occurring, the, the strategies that you're going to try to do to reduce, eliminate, change the behavior will be ineffective if you don't have that coming from that that relationship piece. Yeah, and, and again, it's it's there's a relationship aspect, so there's a trust, but there's also that understanding, understanding the motivation behind the behavior. Like a lot of times, sexual behaviors are a symptom of other things going on. They're lonely, they're anxious. A lot of kids will do self-stimulating behavior, um, not so much for the pleasure, but a way to feel just safe and and they'll start touching themselves or rubbing just because they're feeling anxious and that's their way of coping right so you want to look at what are triggering the behaviors and you know if if you're noticing that every day in math johnny starts doing some inappropriate stuff what's going on in math what's that is he sitting beside some other child that's maybe bothering johnny is he feeling stressed about it what's going on what are the triggers so you try to find out what's going on and then say, okay, mm-hmm. it looks like this is the problem. So can you get rid of the stimulus? Or it might be something as simple as loneliness. Like a lot of these kids don't have friends and they might start touching themselves when they see their friends or when they see other kids playing with each other and talking and, and like carousing and they feel separated and left alone. Mm-hmm. So then they start doing something that might not be appropriate. Right. So what's the trigger? And then as a teacher, you might say, oh, it seems like every time he's left alone and the other kids are kind of talking and all that kind of stuff, that's when he starts doing it. Maybe 
you might talk to a lot of the other some of the kids and say, hey, why don't you you know include Johnny into this, and then bring him into the activity so that it distract well not distracts him but you know maybe refocuses him on the social activity as opposed to uh, you know feeling anxious and alone. Right, mm-hmm. and I think bringing it back to the brain piece around at the beginning, you presented on the gaps that can occur, mm-hmm. and individuals um, with FASD or um, in terms of sexual identity, in terms, in terms of yeah. sexual identity, mm-hmm. and then um, and then like the the, the learning piece, um, the dismaturity piece of of these areas, the social awareness, the social skills that are mm-hmm. often seen as one of the neurodevelopmental domains that are impaired, and you have explained that that sexual identity is a developmental definitely developmental and so as as the child develops if those gaps are there they're going to fill them with or potentially they could be filled with um well they'll try to fill them yeah they're and, not. and it's filled with it might be in a, what would be deemed inappropriate behaviors or they're not sure because they might learn things that meet their needs but from a societal perspective and a social perspective we say well that's wrong it, it's uncomfortable for everybody else it's maybe harming somebody else or something so you know ideally what we have to do is help them develop fill those gaps with appropriate behaviors with things that still help meet their needs but at the same time it's not coercive and it's not hurting anybody else or making it uncomfortable for other people right which i which i imagine is the same for every student oh yeah every yeah. individual is that mm-hmm. you're continuously teaching what's appropriate what's not and and individuals with FASD might have need more of that teaching in Definitely. those areas and if we just pass that through and just just think that we don't need to teach those skills those gaps are going to become more and, and you know the thing is the typical kid they might hit some social snags and they do something that was they step into it if you know what I mean mm-hmm. and they realize oh shoot I shouldn't have done that they learn and then they know next time they're not going to do that. They're going to do something else. So, for example, if they're like a girl and they approach the girl and they say something and the girl says, blah, 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 mm-hmm. they say, oh, that didn't work. I'm going to try something different. Well, someone with FESD might approach a girl and get a negative thing, but they don't know how to correct it. Mm-hmm. So where should be there to how would you talk to a girl? What would you say? What's appropriate? What's not? At the same time, it might be a little girl. Uh, it might be a girl, and a boy comes to her and, you know, wants to hold her and whatever, and she thinks, well, it's fine. Well, that appropriate, you know. A typical girl might say, well, no, you're not supposed to. I'm not supposed to hold another guy or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's those kinds of things that, uh, you know, we need to support them in helping them, you know, just figure things out. Yeah. And, you know, um, in our presentations, in our, our workshops, we share the importance of teaching skills in different environments because exactly. uh, the challenges with that generalizing. So we will teach them the importance of teaching those skills in the classroom and then teaching those same skills within the library or within the gym yeah. because they're not always transferable. <laughs> and so same thing with, um, you know, uh, around teaching sexual health in different environments because uh, you said like they might not learn from one situation and then maybe they'll get the consequence and then they'll, uh, or for whatever reason, we'll, we'll, we'll learn in that scenario, but then might do that. They can't generalize it in a different yep. scenario. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so yeah, just being aware of, it's not just specific to schooling. It's, it's the, that generalizing piece is in many different facets of their life, Definitely. including sexual health. Yep. Um, yeah, that, uh, 
another important thing that I, I took out of that was that uh, start early. Prevention is best, but start early um, for, for teaching uh, the sexual health for our students. Do you want to Well, I, I think the biggest thing is uh, you want to start with an early, right away. If you know a child has FASD, right away you want to have a nice nurturing environment where they get a chance to make decisions, you know, explore relationships, making friends. So a lot of parents tend to isolate their kids protecting them and and also embarrassments and stuff like that and no you want to try to put your kids out there let them make friends and have some maybe some pitfalls and whatever at the same time it, it helps them learn but you know to navigate different social situations and that in its and then also within those social situations if things that happen that aren't appropriate or socially appropriate then you might say well in that situation, you shouldn't be doing this. This is what you should be doing. So it gives them a chance to practice right from a young age. Mm-hmm. And it's being reinforced. So it becomes part of their pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to lay down is a foundation so that you know their behaviors are always patterned to something that's socially uh, sanctioned, you might say. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I... Um that makes me think about you know grade three, four, five, six, seven. As you're as you're teaching through high school, uh, when you're teaching health, how important it is to have all the students a part of the those those health yep. lessons, <laughs> and then if needed, based on that relationship and that that understanding of that child, uh, giving that reinforcing that teaching and that learning for that that, that student repetition, yeah. trying to make it as concrete as possible, make it simple, uh, regardless of the behaviors that you're seeing, right, or not seeing. Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention today in the session is, you know, teaching sex education. I know you have four kids and, you know, um, I would say it should be a family affair. So I know for myself, when my young, uh, when my boys were just starting to get sex education in, in school, you know, at dinner we'd be talking about it, and what's interesting is they were asking some really silly questions, and or they didn't realize they should be embarrassed about those questions, but mm-hmm. they didn't know better, and they were just asking. What was interesting is we were answering, but my daughter, who was also listening, who was too embarrassed to ask these questions, who was older, was learning from it. In the same way, when you have somebody who maybe has an intellectual uh, disability, being in a classroom with typical kids is not a bad thing because they will take in information at a level. Because I've talked to lots of kids with physical disabilities as well as um, cognitive, and they talk about how they felt really ostracized or felt different when they were pulled out of sex education where everybody else got it and they weren't allowed to get it. Or, you know, or the teacher would be really proactive and say, and if you have a disability, and then everybody looks at them. Hmm. So they said, that's not a good thing either. They just want to be part of the class and let it happen. And then you do disability-specific education and training separate from Mm -hmm. uh, the classroom. So you add on. So they shouldn't get less. They should get more. Typical plus more. Can you speak on the importance of self-esteem for the individual around that sexual health? Well, self-esteem, what I found in my research around sexual uh, sexual health education for people with disabilities is, you know, they, like I said, they all wanted the typical sex education, but the key components that came out also was, you know, work on self-esteem, body image, and assertiveness. So those were the three areas that 
uh, individuals with disabilities said that it should be added to sexual health curriculum for people with disabilities because they have the most difficulties with those areas, mm-hmm. right? So uh, self-esteem is so critical because it allow you know, if a person has good self-esteem, they can sort of address some challenges, uh, not sort of they're more likely to address it in a positive way than a negative way. You know, because generally if your self-esteem is low, you always blame yourself and take sort of the passive approach. But if your self-esteem tends to be high, you're more likely to be okay. And like I said, uh, where um, we talked about the research, how they said it's better to be upfront and honest with kids with disabilities and say, you are going to have problems. You are going to have some issues uh, compared to the typical kid. But it doesn't mean it doesn't, you're not allowed to have a relationship or, you know, have some sort of sexual future. It's just, it's going to be harder for you, mm-hmm. but you need to, you know, accept that. And it allows them to move forward as opposed to kind of sugarcoating it and not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I took a few notes here around teaching FASD and a few things that you've already mentioned was it's still important to cover what's done in the traditional classroom. That was number one. Mm-hmm. Number two was uh, address that impact or the impact of disability, address that um, uh, pertaining to their needs. Uh, number three, techniques for managing situations, which I think we kind of talked a little bit about, about mm-hmm. those uh, addressing and teaching those different situations and scenarios that they might be put in, but uh, how important it is to make those situations real, using real context, whether it's, um, you know, on a field trip, whether it's in the cafeteria, the washroom, so specifically teaching those. And then uh, one thing that stood out was about having supports, so having somebody in the school or somebody that when they, as a technique, like a safe person where they can actually go to. I'm having this urge, or I'm have I'm you know I feel this way that they that they feel safe that they can express fully. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. it's just a lot of I mean life is complicated, and you can give them rules and whatever, but the reality is they're going to hit situations where you're not sure what to do. You know, and how do they decode that situation? And and if it doesn't fit within the rules that they've been given, instead of just impulsively acting out. They almost are taught to say, nope, not going to do anything here. I need to step back, call mom, call the teacher's assistant, or go ask somebody, get you know their perspective on it, and then deal with it. So it's this is, you know, like we're talking about skill-based and all that, so they are able to interact and sort of live life uh, to its fullest, but there are going to be situations where they're not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to um, where it might be seen as coercive or touching boundaries, etc. When there's other people involved, that's when you know those rules come into play. Where if this happens and you're not sure what to do, this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And you almost talk about what do you feel when you're not sure what to do. Like automatic, if you feel not sure, you feel kind of that maybe it's not right. Automatically, you stop. You know, so you give them cues to know that it's not something that they know what to do with and then they need to get help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, all right, uh, so just to summarize it. Okay. Um, what advice would you give a teacher? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing uh, that you could share with a teacher around supporting individuals uh, around the sexual health? I think the biggest thing is acknowledging sexual health is, or sexual expression is normal and natural. 
and everybody has a need to have healthy expression. However, the definition of healthy expression it might be different for people with disabilities. So we can't follow from a heteronormative perspective. We have to look at the individual. As long as the rule of thumb I always use is, as long as it's not coercive, it's not causing harm to anybody to or themselves, and they're finding pleasure or a sense of quality, increased quality or satisfaction, etc., then why not? Awesome. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much, Dr. Nesmil. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.